Uh, speaking of change, um, I know that this doesn't have anything to do with the message and things, but it came to my mind. Um, I've been had the pleasure of getting together with Jim Davidson um, these last number of weeks. Uh, <clears throat> Jim is at New Life Recovery uh, for Alcoholism in uh, Lebanon, Indiana. And I want you to be encouraged with just the great work that I believe the Lord is doing in Jim. And uh, I look forward to probably having him come and share sometime and just to, to uh, encourage you to be praying for Jim as well. Um, just, uh, he's at beyond 120 days of sobriety, which is um, a real praise, and there's a lot having to do with the brain that is helpful once you reach that point, and just seems to be in a really good, humble place in desiring for the Lord to work in his life. So, <clears throat> just uh, just continue. I want to mainly am asking you to to be lifting Jim <clears throat> up in your prayers. Um, you know, that's a good idea. I don't have that. There probably is. But it's New Life Recovery in Lebanon. <clears throat> so here in uh, John chapter 11, as we've kind of, you know, we were there for the first half and then, and then I was, wasn't feeling well and, the, and uh, Ben was so um, gracious to preach that following week and then <clears throat> I was back for a week and then gone for vacation and and so we kind of have stepped into John 11 um, moving through it kind of slowly and things um, between these times and <clears throat> in some ways it's grieving for me because this is really the uh, culmination point of this group of chapters that, that uh, of this section of chapters 5 through 11, and we'll talk about what those speak about. But here in John 11, we've centered on the idea that wherever sin has brought death, Jesus has made new life available. Wherever sin has brought death, Jesus has made new life available. In his conversations with Martha, we came to some dramatic truths. And one of those is him saying, I am the resurrection and the life. When, when she's saying, Lord, I know there's a, I believe the, the theology you teach about the resurrection. He's like, whoa, I am the resurrection. And also the fact that whoever believes in him will have new life. In other words, everyone who believes in Christ, what he has done for Lazarus, what he, has, what he did for Mary and Martha and the disciples in transforming their understanding of what new life in Christ is, is available to everyone who believes in him. Jesus also showed us something about God and himself as he interacted with the moment of grief for Mary and Martha and the whole crowd and Lazarus. He bristles and is disturbed by the grief that sin and death had brought to his creation. We also saw that he enters into our grief with empathy 
as we observe him weeping over the pain and loss of death. Lastly, we observed Jesus be who he claimed to be by calling Lazarus to come out of the tomb and out of death and into life again. After Jesus' most dramatic sign of his authority and his power and who he is and, and showing that who he says he is, he is the resurrection and he is the life and bringing someone back from the dead, we read these sad words. <clears throat> we read, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. <clears throat> he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What a great commentary of the situation that John gives us in verses 51 and 52. We pick up in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. <clears throat> this is the most distilled example of what we have been studying in verses five, uh, chapters 5 through 11. And we've called this section, if you recall, Battle Lines of Belief. And it's built up to this point. The unwillingness of some of the mourners and the Jewish leavers, uh, Jewish leaders, the, their unwillingness to believe in Christ is staggering. And it's evidence of their spiritual blindness. You know, I, I read a, a, <clears throat> a story about a man who was walking his dog, quite talented dog, uh, along the beach. <clears throat> and he came upon a stranger, and he said to the stranger, uh, he said, you want to see my dog do a trick? So the stranger said, sure, why not? So he picks up a piece of driftwood and throws it as far as he can into the ocean. The dog runs out to get the driftwood on the water, mind you, okay? Picks up the driftwood, runs back on the water to the beach. The man looks over at the stranger, and the stranger's like, you know, kind of shakes his head, and he's like, maybe he's thinking, maybe he didn't see what happened here. So he picks the driftwood up again, throws it even further and again, his dog runs out on top of the water, picks up the, the piece of driftwood, and heads back. Uh, to that, he kind of looks over and, and still not seeing this observer show any signs of, of, um, of 
surprise or anything like that. He says to him, he asks him, did you notice anything unique? He says, and the observer just kind of shakes his head and says, uh, your dog just can't swim, can he? <laughs> what we see going on in chapter 11 is intended to have this same impact. As we have moved through these chapters and we see Jesus doing more <clears throat> amazing signs. And, and this, these aren't all the signs that Jesus did, but it's been John's desire as he writes this to show how Jesus has healed a man from miles away, how he has healed a man that was lame for 38 years, it said, and, and others, how he, he feeds over 15,000 people. And here it culminates in him raising man from the dead. And eyewitnesses come to the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and it's, they have about the same response as this stranger on the beach. What are we going to do about this guy? This is John's intention to build up to this point. Our main idea this morning is the ways of fallen man are pitiful compared to the sovereign saving work of God which brings new life. The ways of fallen man are pitiful compared to the sovereign saving work which brings new life. John has a way of drawing out the irony of these moments. I won't go back over how we've seen this in past chapters, but this section chapters of chapters 5 through 11 has covered one indisputable sign after another done by Jesus before the Jews. And there has been a lot of irony in how the Jews have responded to Jesus' visible displays of his person. And, and here we see specifically three ironic comparisons that John makes. First we see... Man's politics versus God's provision. Man's politics versus God's provision. We read, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, which would be the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And at that point, we would hope they would say, and that's great because he's the Messiah. There's just no way to get around it. But instead, we see it's, it's working against their idol of their political aspirations. And we read, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, I'm going to speak a little bit about politics and politicians. I apologize for my cynicism. Certainly, grassroots politics is a wonderful thing, not that national isn't. Don't, you know, we have uh, Don who's running for county council, and we have our county commissioner here w with us. So please don't take this as, as disparaging all politicians, if you will. But I don't know about you, but I get sickened when I see politicians being politicians. Um, <clears throat> I get tired of seeing them say, especially on the national scene, I get tired of seeing them say whatever needs to be said in order to make the other side look bad. 
you know, and this is, it doesn't, it's not limited just to the politicians themselves. It seems that anything that a news channel doesn't agree with, they'll call it partisan politics. But if it's an issue that they agree with the direction it's going in, it's called a campaign of conscience, you know, or championing a cause. I think that we be, I get most disgusted maybe when, when our national parties, uh, feign moral outrage and unite only because something maybe has caught national attention and, and has brought on national outrage. And so, okay, now it's time. If we don't speak to this, you know, people are going to think we don't care. Our passage this morning depicts the uniting of two political parties, if you will, against one common foe. The Pharisees, and we've talked about this before, they would be the scribes and the lawyers that, that really defined for the Jewish people what the law entails and how it should be acted out upon, much like our legislative branch of government is how the Pharisees would have functioned. The chief priests came strictly from the group, the Sadducees. So John is saying the Pharisees and the Sadducees got together here, and they carried out much of the law's requirements, say in temple requirements, but they were also the governing authority for the Jewish people. So they would be much like our uh, executive branch of government. Combined as the Sanhedrin, this would be like our judicial branch of government. Both governed national affairs under Roman jurisdiction. The Romans had conquered Israel. It was a part of the Roman Empire, but Rome would allow the Sanhedrin to rule as long as it met their purposes and as long as it didn't get too messy under their rule. So they recognize here, I want you to notice they, <clears throat> they recognize Jesus has performed many signs, including with the pinnacle of which is raising Lazarus from the dead. They recognize that people are believing in Jesus, and they consider this to be a bad thing. And this is because they fear the Romans, they say. They fear the Romans taking away their nations of autonomy within the Roman Empire, but more importantly, taking away their ability to rule over the Jewish people, their fellow countrymen. We move ahead in this area of man's politics versus God's provision, where it says that one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The, the position that Caiaphas held of high priest was not a rotating one. But they served as long as the Romans allowed them to. Caiaphas ruled for 18 years. He's in his 15th year of rule at this point in time of John chapter 11. The high priests that ruled before him, the three high priests that ruled before him, ruled for only one year each and were disposed deposed by the Roman. The person that ruled after Caiaphas ruled for only one year before they were deposed by the Romans. So Caiaphas had 
held his position of high priest uniquely and by political maneuvering and trying to get things to go his way to keep things, uh, the status quo, uh, still not disrupting things and such by keeping the Romans happy. Really, Caiaphas' statement here is a death sentence for Jesus. In the Sanhedrin's mind, the prosecutor, judge, and jury had spoken, had given its ruling, and the rest was only going to be procedural. And this is why we read in verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him, being Jesus, to death. Now, John's readers would have noticed, they would have picked up very easily on the ultimate irony of the moment. And that was that the Jews sacrificed their Messiah. And here is the point, one of the points where they decided this needs to happen. They sacrificed their Messiah in order to preserve their power. But by the time John writes this, and by the time his readers are reading it, the Romans have already come and deposed the Sanhedrin and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So they're reading this and they're reading and they're understanding the irony of this moment. They thought, if, if we can get rid of this guy, this is the answer to us keeping power. And Caiaphas's opening statement is incredibly ironic. You know nothing at all, he says. As we learn from John, the reality is that Caiaphas was being used by God without knowing anything at all about it. And we read that when we look, see God's provision. We're in verse, <clears throat> well, well, Caiaphas goes on in verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. John speaks about the fact that Caiaphas was prophesying that Jesus would die for the nation. What John explains here is that Caiaphas alludes, what, or, or what John is explaining that Caiaphas is alluding to is what we call substitutionary atonement. And this is actually a very important doctrine. It's one of the doctrines that as Christian theologians or, um, or thinkers become more liberal, this is one of those doctrines that they want to get rid of. Because the substitutionary atonement of Christ speaks to the fact that we have sin that needed to be paid for. And that Christ's death and resurrection was in substitute of the fact that we were to die as a result of our sin and never see resurrection. It's an aspect of Christ's death and resurrection that points to the fact that he took what we deserve. He paid the penalty of our sin so that we might have the opportunity and have a, to have a relationship with God. This is what Isaiah foretold when he said, by opposition and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? This is what Paul preached or it's what drove Paul to preach the gospel and what he preached, where he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ controls us. 
because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And the fact that we didn't really deserve this was, uh, or we, that we could ever earn it is key. As we read in Romans 5, 6, that it was for while we were still weak and sinners, if you will, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Getting back here to the, the ironic comparison between man's politics and God's provision. <clears throat> in, in Webster's Dictionary's definition of politics, it includes these statements, or this statement. It calls it a, comp- a competition between competing interest groups or individuals for power and leadership. I think the warning in this passage involves people trying to manipulate others or even manipulate God in order to get their way accomplished, in order to get what their finite mind thinks needs to happen. We see the drastic example of these men doing this at the expense of knowing Christ. You know, it's kind of like, you remember the ant farms? I don't know if they sell ant farms anymore. They probably feel like they're um, inhumane or something like that. But, you know, it's two little panes of plexiglass with sand in between, and you dump your, your colony of ants in there, and they go to work you know, building what they think needs to be built and building tunnels and stuff like that. And you get to see what's going on. And if you can imagine the ants deciding, you know, we're going to do whatever we need to do in order to get this person that, that put us in here to act according to our will. You know, how stupid is that? <laughs> you know, but, you know, what, what's, what do you have to do every now and then? because there's such a limited amount of sand and stuff like that. I don't know if they, there's signs of the ants starting to get frustrated, but you just have to take the ant farm and just, you know, shake it up and let them start all over again. That's how I did it. <laughs> I must have had some really frustrated ant pets. I, I picture God taking this, this, these plans of these men, these political aspirations, the way that they thought was going to secure their future and, and their world as they knew it and shaking it up. But what's unique about it is after he shook it up, set it down, it was exactly as he planned it out. He shook up what they had planned, but in reality, it all fell in place for the provision for their own salvation. What's interesting is many of these men likely became Christians after Jesus' resurrection. We'll read later in John that many of them believed in Jesus, but they were afraid of the other Jewish leaders, and they didn't want to, to claim him. I'm glad that God shook things up according to his plan. And anytime a person gets saved or turns their life over to the Lord or realizes that the direction that they're moving in is in contradiction to what God wants to do in their life, if he is gracious to them, he will shake things up. But we need to know in those moments that his plan and his provision 
is at work. And this is one of those moments that I hope you're encouraged by, that here it seems like the most powerful men in the land were coming against Jesus and God slips in with his sense of humor, them prophesying that through all this, they were just working according to his plan. And it still works that way today. The second of our ironic comparisons here is man's gathering versus God's gathering. We see, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in verse 47, the council, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And, and uh, I'll explain why I'm grouping these verses together in a moment, but if you skip to verses 51 and 52, it said, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You know, in studying scripture through an inductive Bible study process, one of the things that's helpful to do is to look for words that the author intentionally repeats or intentionally uses more than once in different things to kind of draw out what is the intended meaning here. And and two of the only repeated words in this passage are what John describes the council as being gathered, but in reality, God was gathering his own group. John seems to highlight the irony of the futile gathering of these seemingly powerful men And all they're doing is furthering his plan to gather a people for himself. And we see in man's gathering that these men gathered as an understanding. The understanding that they had was that they were the bee's knees of Israel. And their understanding was that they were the cream of the crop. And I've said this before, but a big reason why they didn't believe in Jesus is because he felt like they didn't believe, he didn't believe in them. Their complete expectation was that if he or, or when the Messiah would come, he would be doing things as they said he should be doing them and he would recognize them in their position and he would see them as being uh, perfect to be his closest disciples. And so their gathering together was based on this idea that certainly this guy cannot be who he claims to be because he doesn't recognize us as a group. But we see in God's gathering where where John writes, Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Ironically, God's gathering didn't require these men. Although many would join him, as I mentioned, on his terms after his resurrection, God's gathering would involve those who had been scattered. We saw this term scattered in chapter 10 where Jesus is teaching on his being the good shepherd. He spoke about the worthless shepherds that would allow wolves to come in and scatter his people. 
And we talked about the fact at that time that these men, these Jewish leaders, really were represented by these hired hands that would allow God's people to simply be scattered. But this would also resonate, again, with John's readers as they were reading his gospel scattered across the Roman Empire, partly in obedience to what Jesus said to them, the latter part of Matthew, where he talked about when you see these things happen, get out of Jerusalem. And they scattered prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But what's also interesting about what God will gather into one is that they are described, we are described as the children of God. These men believed unequivocally that Israel, these men, the Sanhedrin, they believed unequivocally that Israel was, that only Israel was God's children. And, and the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin, as we mentioned, they saw themselves as the best of God's children. But this is part of the reason why John says 13 times throughout his gospel that those who would have a relationship with God, it, that it was available to whoever believes. He was pointing out and correcting this idea that you have to be a Jew first. He was pointing this out and he hopes to do so. His message here is that no matter what group or nation you belong to, whoever believes in Christ. And we've seen this, as I said, it's come up 13 times in his gospel. We saw this come together in the, the clearest in John 1, 11 through 13, where we read, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And, and John is speaking specifically here to the fact that when he talks about those born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, he's saying it's not just Jews. And this has been a theme throughout his gospel. But it's those who are born of God. As we remember from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, you must be born of God, Nicodemus. He said to him. And Nicodemus, it was, he was trying to fit this into his mind that it wasn't his Jewishness that saved him. <clears throat> and so here in our passage, we see that it's not these men being a part of the Sanhedrin that make them about God's plan. It's not them gathering together, their futile gathering. It is his plan to gather from those scattered across the world. And we know that a person must be born of God in order to have that relationship with him. We know that it is whoever believes, in, and I'll just unpack that for a second, meaning whoever understands that their, our sin does a, a terminal work on us in keeping us from being able to have a relationship with God. But that Christ, as I mentioned, substitutionary atonement, he took upon 
himself our sin and paid for it and rose from the dead. And so that whoever believes in his death and resurrection to be count for them, to be able to count for them in confessing their need for it because of their sin, whoever believes that is able to become a children, a child of God. And they become those, a part of those gathered to his own though they were scattered across the world. <clears throat> you know, I'm officiating, as I mentioned, two weddings in these next two Saturdays. Traditionally, these would start with the words, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to witness. One day, those of us who have received Christ as our Savior, we will gather, not as a witness, but as the bride. And he's gathering us. He's gathering us for that purpose. We can rest in the fact that no matter what, who's who of unbelievers gathers together to try to change God's plan or deny his truth, it's his gathering us as his children that really matters. And we're seeing a drastic nature of the blindness of these men who have determined to not believe in Christ. We see as our third comparison here, man's blindness versus God's revelation. Now, this ironic contrast here is one more of, it's more of implication of what's going on here than necessarily coming from the text, if you will. You might not understand what I mean by that. It's just kind of a, issue of conscience for a preacher, um, expositional, if you will, preacher. Um, but we talked about these chapters being 5 through 11, which we're closing out today as being battle lines of belief, but you could just as easily call them battle lines of blindness. We've seen Jesus perform signs of healing before the Jews of Jerusalem, and each time the religious leader, they dug their heels in even more. And this attitude will culminate in chapter 12 that we'll move into, and John will give this commentary in verses 37 through 40, where he says, though he, being Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and whom, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, John says. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. This is what, you know, John's commentary that he's gonna give in chapter 12 of what's going on here. You know, these men had eyewitness reports of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Their concern does not even have to do with if it really happened. I mean, we all face death. And if somebody can help us with that, I don't know about you, but we should all be interested in that. And their concern does not even involve if it really happened. In fact, from reading it, it appears like 
they recognize that it happened. They seem to be only thinking of maintaining their position and power, as I mentioned. And I go back to these verses um, quite often to talk about this, but I just can't get around the explanation of 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 6. In their case, in this situation, it would be explaining these Jewish leaders. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It was shining right before them. But the blessing of verse 6 is awesome. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Every time I bring those verses up, I could preach another sermon on those, so I better move forward. I want to share some kind of autobiographical experience with um, a crisis of faith that I experienced well, a student at Moody. See, I went to Moody in order to understand what the truth was. And somewhat, <clears throat> which is common for, um, you know, people uh, the age that I was at that time. I went to Moody in order to figure out what were all these denominational differences and I'm going to figure out what's the right way. Okay, I'm a recovering Presbyterian uh, from growing up. <clears throat> but, um, and so I went to understand the truth. What is the truth? But it, it didn't take me long in my biculturalism class to figure out that we all have a worldview. And like, like colored glasses that we all wear, everything that we see is tinted by that worldview. It's tinted by our culture, by our experience, by our values, by our upbringing. And we can't get around it. And I came to a crisis of faith when I realized, then how can I know what is really true? If everything that I see, everything that I interpret is tinted by my worldview. But what fell on me like a boulder, and it wasn't necessarily a full comfort yet, and I'll kind of go into why that is, but what fell on me, what hit me realize, realizing this was, this is why God had to reveal himself. This is why God had to reveal himself in a recorded body of texts for us to have an authority for our lives. Because otherwise, all of us would look up to heaven and see God through our worldview and have a different view of him. He had to bring his truth to us. Scripture talks about how in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, in 2 Peter 1.21, we read, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why was this required? Because if it didn't happen this way, you would just be getting their understanding of life. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told, All scripture is breathed out by God. 
and profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And meaning, if we don't come from his truth, as we try to help one another in teaching and correcting and reproofing and training, then we're just passing on our understanding of life. If God had not done this, our individual worldviews would have kept us from seeing him as he truly is. Now, Ben Wilson did an excellent job two weeks ago as I I listened to the message uh, of explaining the importance of God's word. And and I would uh, point to, I'd like to point to just one aspect of the trustworthiness of God's word. And I'm gonna hit on the aspect of it being accurate history. Okay, now this is dangerous, I understand. This late in the message, your rear end's kind of starting to fall asleep. Um, I'm gonna get it for talking about rear ends when I get home. But um, no, um, <laughs> um, I'm gonna get it for saying that too. Um, <laughs> but I'd like to show you how John's account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is just as accurate as if it happened yesterday. Okay? That's what I'd like to show you here. And it involves the internal and external and biographic or bibliographical tests of ancient historical literature. Now, I just lost half of you, I know. But for those of you that are like, yeah, give me more, other than what I'm going to share here, I have about five copies of a paper, about a five-page paper on the back table there that um, you can uh, go to and read as well if you want more information on this. But these internal and external tests have to do with, one, how much time passed before the events were recorded, and in the New Testament, you're talking about eyewitnesses to Jesus. Okay, this is uncommon in ancient history. All right? How, uh, the other is how close the oldest manuscripts are to the original writing. Um, <clears throat> if I can explain what I mean by this. And thirdly, it's the number of manuscripts, okay? Let's say that I'm going to ha- hire someone to write about the life and times of J.D. Bowman, Okay? Let's say that it's just one person, although the, bo- the, script- the Bible, we're talking about 40 authors, about nine of them from, for the New Testament, okay, but, which makes it even more complicated. But we're talking about one person recording the life and times of J.D. Bowman. Okay, and let's say people get so on board with this and they buy into it that for generations, for a thousand years, people dedicate their lives to continue to copy by hand the life and times of J.D. Bowman, okay? So much so that we have a whole body of manuscripts hand-copied from that original writing of the life and times of J.D. Bowman, okay? And one of the importance of there being lots of copies is that you can compare one to another. You can compare a copy that was, that was made. Let's say uh, we're talking it's uh, uh, 5,000 A.D. here, 
okay? So 5,000 AD, they say, we need to know if this is accurate ancient history of the 2000s, okay? So they start grabbing manuscripts from here and grabbing manuscripts from here, and they start to compare them, okay? Were there any changes made? Another important thing, let's say the oldest manuscript they have um, dates to about 2300, okay? So all the others decomposed and, and but... But that's a pretty good date. And so one thing that they would do is they would take one of the newest manuscripts and they would compare it to the oldest manuscript. And they would say, okay, has anything changed over the time of this recording? These are things that would solidify whether or not this was accurate ancient history, if we're talking about the year 2000s being ancient history, all right? When you're talking more than one author, you're talking about comparing the different authors to see if they contradict. These are all what's involved in the internal integrity of ancient history. Okay, how does it compare to itself? How does the authors compare to each other in what they say? The external integrity involves things like um, it would be very important that that history does not contradict other histories that were written at that time. It'd be very important that it doesn't contradict other disciplines like archaeology or astronomy, okay? <clears throat> what I'm describing for you are the, these sort of internal and external tests. As I mentioned, that any piece of ancient literature must go through, they must pass in order to be consider, considered historically accurate. This is the world's tests, Okay? These are just as much secular tests as they are sacred tests of historical ancient history. Okay, now I'm really going to lose some of you. I got a, a chart here, okay? Um, what we know of Julius Caesar in the Gaelic Wars, the, there was a thousand years, there's a thousand year gap between the oldest manuscript and when it was originally written. The world only has 10 copies of that. Anybody learn about Julius Caesar in school? They're pretty confident in what they know about him. The best we have of ancient literature is probably Homer Ili Homer's Iliad with 643 copies. Okay? We have 5,366 manuscripts. Some of those partial. 5,366 manuscripts of the New Testament. And of those, I narrowed it down to of those that are full books of the New Testament, we have manuscripts that date to 100 years after the original writing. That's crazy historically accurate. There's, no, there's nothing else that compares to it. You've learned about Alexander the Great. You've learned about ancient China. You've learned about Julius Caesar, as I mentioned. And these are all taught with confidence. We have better historical accuracy with the scripture than anything. In fact, well, and, and you can see here in internal uh, comparison with each other, these, there is no, you can't really say of accuracy because when you're only comparing 10 manuscripts, you might have the 10 manuscripts that got changed. Because it's all about, is it accurate to what actually happened? 
This 99% plus, less than 1% difference in comparison of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, these differences amount to writing style and spelling. Concerning the manuscripts evidence of the New Testament, Ravi Zacharias says this, in real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events and the document, and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it. That's, he's talking about those tests we've mentioned. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. In other words, according as far as what any piece of ancient history runs through, it's as accurate as if it happened yesterday. There is so much historical proof of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. As I mentioned, it might as well have happened yesterday. But more significant than Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is that he raised himself from the dead. That falls in there too. There's better historical evidence for the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead than Julius Caesar ever existed. But yet we'll be taught Julius Caesar with confidence. Paul feels the weight of the historical truths as he's writing in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The heart cry of John as a writer is this. It happened. Celebrate it believe it, or as he talks about in 1 John, what we held, what we touched, what we saw with our hands, what we saw with our eyes, we proclaim to you. You know, we're not even going to touch other aspects of Scripture, such as uh, its fulfillment of prophecies. We're not even going to talk about the claims that it makes of being the revealed word of God. We're just talking about the fact that what it said truly happened according to the secular tests that all ancient history goes through. But even with the Bible standing as the best example of accurate ancient history that we could ever learn from, the world refuses to give it a hearing. Their response is typically, you know, that's just what some scribe thought to write down. It was probably tampered with over the centuries. That person has not done their homework. But then something like this, a 1,700-year-old piece of papyrus with no other examples of it, nothing else written, it's not even full lines of writing, it's in Coptic writing that is assumed is translated from Greek, pops up in 2012. One scrap of basically paper. And we get here nightly news anchor men talk about it appears that Jesus had a wife. Because somewhere in this it says, Jesus said, My bride. 
Really? One scrap of papyrus with nothing else to compare itself to. This fails miserably any test of ancient history. Their own tests. This is what you call the bottom of the barrel of intellectual honesty. But in our soundbite culture, this gets traction. Sadly, man's minds are still blinded as they were for the men of the Sanhedrin. The ways of fallen men are pitiful compared to the sovereign saving work of God. So as a uh, student at Moody, I was left with uh, the fact that God needed to reveal himself. But the question I had then was, but did he reveal himself through the Bible? Is this how he went about it? How do I know? If, if, if it all boils down to a person's worldview, how do I know? You know, is this just what people are reading this and saying? And I was blessed with having gone to a Christian school as a teenager. And Eloise Pereira, my Bible teacher, taught us grumbling juniors about the internal and external tests of historical literature. And there sitting in the stairwell of Culbertson dorm, the Lord began to rebuild my faith in his scriptures. And I started with these ideas. Okay, wait a second. And I ran through the internal tests in terms of manuscripts and in terms of age of the manuscripts and manuscripts. This is historical truth. And there's no contradiction to archaeology or to other sciences of that time. And if, if this truly happened in this phenomenon of this historical literature, then Jesus really lived and he really died and he really rose from the dead and he really said everything that it says that he said and he meant everything that it says that he said. And men really lost their lives in order to, to carry out this truth, in order to further this gospel. And the church really was born fantastically and uniquely from this one man's truth. And we really do have his truth here 2,000 years later. And the Lord rebuilt my faith in, his, in the scriptures off of some facts about his accurate history. Well, I thank you for sitting through our our lesson on uh, ancient historical literature. Let me close in prayer. Father, I just pray that you would use these words in the